welcome to Let's Pod This. My name is Andy Moore, I'm your host, and here with me is Scott Melson. Scott Melson, our other host. That's true. Not we're really co host, we're, we're just we're host team. Indeed, indeed. Like Life Church. Something. That's what they have. Something. There's two of us at any rate. So uh, it's been a. Uh, it's not been a busy week. I was going to say it's been a busy week. It's been a whole lot of nothing um, coming out of the state capitol this week. Yeah, you know, I feel like the whole pod today could just be like a gif of me rolling my eyes and giving the finger to the legislature. Like that's kind of <laughs> how I feel. I like that you said gif and not jif. You like that? I'm on team gif because that's what the creator of the file extension. That's what he called it. I mean, he would know, right? Like, he, he seems like he would be the authority. But no, it's just it's just so frustrating. I feel like nihilism is starting to look attractive. Like, I'm just sinking into this place of, does it really matter? Like, is, is anything going to make a difference? Or are we just stuck in this endless cycle of it's despair? It's like the book of Leviticus. Right? <laughs> indeed, indeed. Meaningless, nice. meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Nice Old Testament reference. Thank well you. Done. I was a religion major when I started out in college. Nice. Southern Nazarene back nice. in the back in the day. You've so, also performed a wedding, I hear, right? I've performed several weddings. I am ordained. That's a side gig. Wow. I'm um, gonna start calling you Reverend. Let's let's hitch this. That's what I said. Um, so uh, real quick before we get started. Oh shoot, no, it's not Leviticus, it's the Book of Lamentations. Never mind. Anyway, moving on. A, uh, an announcement uh, that we wanted to make is that on November third, it's a Friday. Uh, it will be our first, we'll say, semi-formal fundraiser called Bourbon. Um, if you've noticed, if you've seen our posts about it, it's like bourbon, but it's spelled differently because it's going to be a bourbon tasting with some steam buns from the best steam buns from Che and Urban, uh, some Korean steam buns. It will be at the Six Twelve Gallery venue. They do so much stuff at yeah, Six Twelve. It's a great uh, spot. It's in the Paseo Six Twelve Northwest Twenty Ninth. And you can get all the details, and you can purchase tickets for yourself, your loved ones, your coworkers, your friends, that cute person you've been eyeing for a while, um, at letsfixthisok.org slash bourbon, B-O-U-R-B-U-N, bourbon. Wordplay. Yeah, I thought it was witty. Um, so please check it out. Um your support, your donations are really what makes all of this possible. Um, we are a super lean organization. Um, in fact, none of us get paid. And uh, really everything we raise goes back into trying to further our reach and further our message. Um, someday, you know, in a big dream, people ask me if, you, if you'd want to do this full time. And I said, someday, I mean, I'd love to. Um, and it would be great to have the time to really dig deep and invest in some of these things or and research and get to know and um, be able to travel the state and reach people that haven't been reached otherwise. So but things like travel and research and investment that takes money. It's tough when they're short on time when you've got a full time job. So indeed. Anyway, it's going to be a great time. It should be a great event. Um, we hope to see you there. Now, real quick, kind of an overview of what we hope to get through today. One, the budget deal that didn't happen. Uh, maybe some discussion of the capital gains exemption, what that means, uh, and then really just Scott and I were going to talk about what's the deal with raising taxes. Um, arguments for and against it, uh, and maybe a few other things uh, if time allows. Scott, kick us off with the budget deal. So we had a press conference last week. Uh, there was a press conference. Leader Inman, the Democratic minority leader from the state house, held a press conference, said we've got it. Like We've got a budget deal. It's a bipartisan compromise. Um, laid out a series of six things. I got super excited, um, both for our state and because the nerd in me loves policy. Um, well, however... 
What were those things? Well, I'm getting there. <laughs> we found out shortly after that that there is, in fact, no deal. And actually, we're just right back to where we started. Um, however, I think that talking about what was in the deal is, is kind of a good place to jump off because these are the things that you know policymakers have, have really been kind of dancing around as they try to come to the table and, and figure out how do we get ourselves out of this hole. Uh, the first thing is the cigarette tax. Cigarette tax um, was the fee that was passed in spring session, declared unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. And depending on who you ask, that's really what has created the quote-unquote budget hole that we're in. So this would – the first part of the proposal is a $1.50 per pack cigarette tax um, that would have raised $215 million. This was a proposal that's really kind of been pushed really hard by uh, the Republican caucus in the House – um, and has, I think, a reasonable degree of support across both parties in both chambers. Um, the next part is a fuel tax. This was a proposal that came from the Senate GOP. Um, this was a six cent per gallon fuel tax. Um, the next part was an elimination of the wind sales tax exemption. The fourth component was a service tax on luxury items. This is something that the governor has proposed. Luxury items, this means things like chartered flights, uh, boat rentals, um, certain kind of high-end services that currently are tax-free. Uh, this would be a new uh, service tax on those. Um, the fifth component um, is what we've all heard probably more about uh, uh, more about than we ever thought that we would. Uh, this would be a 5% gross production tax on all new wells drilled in Oklahoma. If you want more information about what the gross production tax is, why it matters, what the rate you know has been and could be in the future, if you see last week's episode, we talked with Joe Warren and really get into a, a, a pretty in-depth discussion that I think is was really interesting for me about what the GPT is. But for purposes of today, the fifth component of the plan was a 5% uh, GPT on new wells. And then lastly was an income tax increase on high earners. And that was a proposal from the House and Senate Dems. So, you know, I think that when you look at it, this seems like, to me, a pretty reasonable, a reasonable place to land. I mean, we've got components that... We're really pushed by the House GOP, components from the Senate GOP, components from Democrats on both houses. The governor's got some goodies in there. This seems like something that everyone could get on board with, but Andy, it, it doesn't seem like that happened. Right. So altogether, that was about $560 million that they estimated, uh, and that included a teacher pay raise of $2,000. However, that was $1,000 this year, plus $1,000 that they promised for next year, uh, and what we saw was not just one press conference, but two press conferences, uh, one from Scott Inman and then one from the governor. Uh, Scott said this was a bipartisan plan. This was the governor's plan. He's kind of highlighted governor's plan several times. And then later that afternoon, the governor came out and said uh, her now infamous quote of, if there's only one person at the altar, it's not a marriage. She was like, uh, I've never heard of this plan. I don't know. I don't, I don't know where this plan is coming from. So from what I've heard is that, uh, and this is somewhat from Inman, some from some other folks that the governor or her staff kind of approached Leader Inman and said, hey, what would you think about these things? And my hunch is Inman said, that sounds fine. Let's go with that. But they didn't actually like come back and say, yes, we're good. Are you still on board? And it wasn't finalized. Uh, and so, of course, naturally on Twitter, there was some conversation of to further that analogy about the marriage. Uh, and it sounded like, Maybe they both, they said talked about getting married, but didn't actually propose. Um, or it was like, well, we should someday. And then one person's like at the church, and the other one's going, I, well, I wasn't 
quite ready for that yet. So. We never had this conversation. Right. And also, I thought, like, maybe they're at different churches. Like, maybe yeah. they're both like, we should get married. But they had different ideas of, like, where that's going to happen and exactly. So, that I think that analogy is getting stretched a little thin now. And I love analogies. Um, so, it did seem like something for everybody. But it's it also fell off the table just as quickly as we right. thought it was on there. And it's frustrating because it's 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 at once I think a deal like this represents both the best and worst things about our democracy, right? On the one hand it's it's part of the best because this is this really is when you look at the components, regardless of how it, it did or didn't come together, this represents ideas from kind of across the political spectrum. Everybody gets something something that they want, but everyone made concessions too, right? So the Democrats had been pushing for a seven percent GPT and they said, okay, we'll take five. And they wanted it on all wells, not just new wells. They wanted seven on everything, but we said we'll take five on new. The Senate GOP uh, doesn't want a GPT increase at all, but they said, okay, well, instead of doing seven on everything, we'll go ahead and do five on new. We seem like that's reasonable. No one was real excited about the service tax on luxury items. It almost makes you feel bad for Governor Fallon because everybody kind of poo-pooed that when she proposed it in her State of the State address, but they throw that in there. Democrats love the wind sales tax exemption. The GOP hates it. They said, okay, we'll get rid of it. Like, you know, the, everybody's heard the saying, like, there's two things that you don't want to ever see get made, laws and sausages, right? right. Hat tip, Leo McGarry in the West Wing. But this is kind of the ultimate, this is the ultimate piece. This is the big sausage? Yeah, this is the big sausage. <laughs> uh, so the problem with what you said, though, Scott, is that, um, is that everyone made concessions, except not. They just... Right, they didn't... Right. Some people they thought... Were, they didn't know they were making I'll agree to this... I'll concede to this, and they'll concede to something else. But those other people didn't actually weren't in the conversation. So, although you know, we hear that. I think it's probably this is this. I have no inside information. This is my speculation. I think honestly, I think that I think that there was some level of agreement between the governor's office and certainly Senate Dems, and I think that there may have even been some agreement in the Senate. I I suspect that the House Republican Caucus is probably the party that was never really on board. Right. They wield the power. This. I mean, yeah. it's really, they're the ones that need to be appeased. They're the right. ones that have to have the, they have the supermajority here. So, so they had the, the budget deal that wasn't, they have this compromise. It's not going to happen. They shut down the Capitol today. The Capitol is, I think probably most of us know is undergoing substantial uh, renovations and, yeah, you know, I, I toured the building a few weeks ago, and we've got a blog post on the website with some photos from that. And I actually took photos of the old and new electrical panels because when the, Trey Thompson, the project manager, had told me about that, I thought that's going to be a big job. And he said then, well, if we get a special session, we've already told him, like, this date is set in stone that we're going to be closed. So in theory... Was it, like, not, was it knob and tube in there? Is it where they still have, like, a debate? <laughs> yeah, I think so. It's oh, just, that's awesome. Um, I don't know. It was. It looks like... Like a giant box of spaghetti that's spilled out onto the floor. Like it's so many wires. Um, <laughs> and the new panels are very shiny, but it, it's about 100 feet away. So they've got to reroute everything. That oh, yeah. that res- restoration job is an enormous undertaking. Oh, absolutely. And it's once you get down into the, uh, like the inside of the basement and you see what's been there for 100 years, you understand why this was needed. Absolutely. Um, so well, let's that, say we're, we're, we're shut down for two weeks, right? No, no business in the Capitol for two weeks. For the, so to, we're recording this on Thursday. And so through the next weekend, I think it's like 10 days. Okay. So one business week and it should reopen on the 23rd, I believe. So they reopen on the 23rd. And what do you think happens? So I've, uh, I've heard from some legislators that um, Speaker McCall 
plans for them to be back in session that week, the twenty week of the twenty third. They also said they plan to be back this week, so who knows? Suspense. Suspense. Something. Well, what that means for us, practically, is um, that's really the only thing that didn't happen this week. Well, so. it also means that there may be some cuts after all. So you and I discussed earlier today, there's a press conference about um, that the state has kind of told agencies, like, you got to go ahead and plan for cuts uh, because... Without that cigarette tax money, without that $215 million, that's going to cause some cuts, um, particularly for health agencies, because nothing else has changed. They haven't yet gone back into session and and dispersed those cuts over uh, kind of over all the agencies. Absolutely. And it, it's also important to remember, too, that when we talk about this, you know, we've been throwing around, peop, you know, $215 million gets thrown around as the budget hole a lot. We even use that number here on the pod. Um, it's important to remember that that's actually substantially less because there are federal matching dollars that come with that money, in some cases two to one. So when you factor those federal matching dollars in that we are also going to lose, the hole is closer to $500 million. Right. Yeah, it's a it's a huge chunk of change. They've got to go ahead and plan. Um, of those, like the the Oklahoma Healthcare Authority will lose about seventy million dollars, and it's already said it's going to have to cut reimbursement rates to medical providers. Nine percent, nine percent, which means a lot of people are going to lose their doctors, children yeah. particularly, but a lot of people are going to lose. Their well, doctors. and I had a meeting yesterday with some behavioral health providers who are looking at stopping to see ceasing to see Medicaid patients because the paperwork's already pretty cumbersome, and when they're looking at having lower reimbursement rates, it's not, it's literally not worth their time right. to see them. It's easier if they saw those same people for less in cash. Right, those people don't have the cash to pay for it, but um, that was kind of the discussion. The also, mental health is going to get a 23% budget cut um, to their funding. This is from Preston Dorflinger. Yeah. Um, he announced this today. Um, the DHS is going to lose $69, $69 million, um, which is going to have to cause them to freeze or eliminate um, the Advantage Waiver Program, which, which serves people like get care dis- outside of nursing homes. Yeah, and it, people that are disabled or elderly. Um, it, just... The child care uh, subsidy will be gone. Foster care recruitment, in-home support waiver for children and adults. Also, um, getting kids into foster care, that's a huge deal right now for DHS because of the Pinnacle Plan, which, I mean, we could donate a whole – Yeah. Could, uh, we, could was, a whole, we could have a whole podcast on the Pinnacle Plan. And For those of you at home, you can't see I'm rubbing my face <laughs> because the Pinnacle Plan is the result of a federal investigation into our Department of Human Services and the massive failings that have occurred in that department – how we've literally failed the lives of Oklahomans who are most vulnerable. So the feds came in and said, listen, you guys are doing a terrible job. Um, you got to get it together. We're gonna, you got to make a plan for how you're going to get it together. They developed this pinnacle plan. And this is by court order, by the way. This is not like a, oh, though, thank you for the suggestions. We'll consider those. Consider us advised. No, this is and by, this is this is a legally enforceable requirement. Yeah, and I don't know, I still don't know what the penalty is. I don't know if that means the feds would step in. But, I mean, for a state, no one likes the feds stepping into their business, and Oklahoma really doesn't. So this is going to be a bad deal. All right, so what's next? Um, up next, let's move on from that because I'm getting depressed. Um, capital gains exemption. Yeah. What, what is it? So we, we touched on this briefly last week, and, you know, we I, I felt like that we, we didn't really get 
as as much in, into it as I think would be appropriate. So we'll we'll get a little bit more detail, uh, a little bit more detail today, without going too much into the weeds. This is essentially a law that was enacted in 2004 as part of State Question 713, um, and it allows taxpayers to exempt from their taxable income gains from the sale of property located in Oklahoma or the stock of a company that's headquartered in Oklahoma. So you sell your you sell not just your house, but like investment homes, other real estate, right. or you sell stock. Right. Certain certain kinds of property and certain kinds of stock. Who has um, these kinds of properties? Uh, so generally speaking, this is something that benefits um, the wealthiest um, of Oklahomans because wealthy people um, are generally the ones who have enough leftover income that they can invest it in things like stock and things like property right. and, you know, assets other than, you know, the main asset that we all have, which is our, which is our home. So typically folks with low income don't have stocks, investments, or income properties. Right. Um, <laughs> the reason, you know, so the question is, you know, why are we hearing about this now? This passed in 2004. Why is this a deal? Well, so there was a bill that was passed in 2015, um, House Bill uh, 2182, and it established the Oklahoma Incentive Evaluation Commission, which is responsible for looking at tax incentives um, that have been passed by the legislature and kind of seeing, are these tax incentives doing what they're supposed to do? Are they spurring investment? Are they generating an economic growth? Hold on. That makes sense. It seems like a good idea. It's so it's a not an agency, but like a it's it's a uh, it's a commission it commission, is a, a of commission people of the government that reviews these tax incentives that the legislature passes and make sure make sure they're doing what they're supposed right. to do. I like this. Right. So now the actual investigation and evaluation of these programs is pretty complicated. It involves a lot of big, scary-looking math. Um, so there's a company in Pennsylvania that does the actual evaluation. The Pennsylvania it's a Pennsylvania company called PFM Group Consulting, and then they report back to the commission. And this evaluation looks at um, a four-year time frame, and they have each incentive. So this particular law, the capital gains uh, exemption, has a specific set of criteria that uh, PFM Group has to use to determine whether it's doing its job. Um, so what do they find? Basically, that this program costs a whole lot of money. The four-year period they looked at was 2010 to 2014, and they found a $474 million in lost tax revenue and about $9 million in new revenue. Now, Andy, I'm not good at the new math, but <laughs> is $474 million more or less than $9 million? I believe that's more. It is. I think it's more, too. And I think if you take... If you take a negative four hundred seventy-four million and a negative, a positive nine million, and you add those together, you get a still a pretty big negative number of right. four hundred sixty-five million dollars, which is what the net cost of the state of Oklahoma has been. So that's what we've lost in tax revenue. Now the argument is, well, it's spurred all of this new investment and job creation, and yeah. Um, that turns out really, really difficult to measure. Um, what they use as a surrogate marker is they look at the number of taxpayers who are claiming this specific deduction as a percentage of the total number of taxpayers claiming capital gains on their tax return. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of their mm -hmm. marker. And they found that that number, there's no change over the lifetime of the incentive. That number has not changed at all, which would indicate that it actually has not spurred any new investment. It's just cost us a whole lot of money. Right. So it didn't help us any. It just cost us. It just we just missed out on opportunity right. for about five hundred million dollars. Right. And of the people that are claiming this exemption, eighty three point seven percent of them make greater than two hundred thousand dollars a year, which seems like a lot. Um, the, a lot of money. That's a lot of well, yeah. It's not not a lot of people. Not a lot of a, people, but it's a big chunk of that group. Yeah. 
Um, and about 75% of the people uh, of the benefit goes to tax of the benefit of this law um, goes to taxpayers who are making over a million dollars annually. So yeah, 83% of them make over 200,000, 75% of them make a million or more. So uh, what's going to happen with this capital gains exemption? Probably nothing is the short answer. It seems like this would be one of those great, this, this would be a great target for repeal, right? This would be a great, like there's good data that suggests it's not helping Oklahoma. It's costing a lot of money. It doesn't take a super majority. It would only take 51 votes because it's repealing an exemption, not raising taxes. Um, this, this seems like here's a, an easy opportunity to, to save the state, you know, hundred, $150 million a year. Right. And possibly boost revenue by an additional like 400 million a yeah. year. All right. So basically something that, really only helps the rich um, and not so only pretty much only folks that make over $200,000 a year and mostly folks that make over a million bucks a year yeah 70 something percent of them make over a yeah. million dollars a year I know this was part of the budget plans that were discussed back in the spring I guess we'll wait and see maybe it'll be back on the table for things one hopes yeah one hopes um, which is this is probably a good uh, kind of parlay into our uh, maybe our third and probably our final kind of segment for this episode about like what's the deal with raising taxes and so before we started recording we were kind of batting this around and I this is here's where I stand personally this is not the position of let's fix this because we don't really take positions on these things but me as a, as a citizen I don't want to pay a dollar in taxes more than I absolutely have to right everyone files taxes I always grumble I file my federal taxes and it seems okay. I get a little refund and then I file my state taxes and I owe a little bit. I'm always like, ah, Oklahoma, why do you have a state income tax? Uh, but then I go outside and I drive on roads and my kids go to public school and I buy groceries and I see police officers and, you know, all this stuff. I'm like, oh, right. This is why we pay taxes because the government only gets money one way, Right. Um, I, I, I mean, essentially, yeah. Besides, taxes and fees. Right. Well, taxes and fees. Fees are just taxes under a different name. Right. right. It's just a, a fee is a tax that not everybody pays yeah. or something. So, uh, yeah, so the government gets money one way. Uh, so today I was doing, I was on Wikipedia doing reconnaissance for this episode, reading about Grover Norquist. Have you read about Grover Norquist? Do you know about him? That freaking guy. <laughs> yeah, Scott, so Scott looks angry. So uh, Grover, I, I, freaking I, admit, I admit, at first, based on his name, I thought he was deceased. I thought he was from a long time ago. He's uh, not. He's still no. He's an active player, still hanging around. God bless him. And so we saw uh, in the news this week there was discussion about um, the Grover Norquist pledge to not raise taxes. Basically, he he launched this. Uh, he he launched uh, Americans for Tax Reform, yeah, his organization. Tax Reform, 1986. Yeah, he says that President Reagan asked him to do it. We can't ask Reagan, sadly, um, if that's actually the case. But he started this pledge uh, in 2012 asking legislators at the state and federal level to take an oath, take a pledge that they would not raise taxes. Which that's, I mean, and it's, and I think, I think he actually even started the pledge bef- before that because he's like, at this point, he's got sixty thousand people have signed the pledge. And I mean, there's, it's a just a pledge, though. I mean, there's, well, it is it's not a, to be rude, but there's a lot of people I knew that signed the True Love Waits pledge when I was in high school. Well, there, it's a fact. I mean, and, there, that's a fact. And actually, like the research bared out that people that signed the and True by Love research, Waits, you mean the number of them that came up pregnant? Well, that's that's they, that they, they by research studies, and I have to go find them now to back this up. But that people who signed the True Love Waits pledge 
uh, actually had a higher rate of sexual activity than those who didn't sign it. And yeah. that's, um, but I, I actually met uh, President George W. Bush at a True Love Waits outdoor convention thing in Austin Aww, when that's I was in high sweet. school. Yeah. Um, I don't remember if I signed anything or not, but that's a long time ago, <laughs> and we're way off topic. Um, so Norquist asks folks to sign this. A lot of our state legislators signed it. There was yes. a story in Oklahoma Watch about that, or was it in Oklahoma? It was in the Oklahoma. Okay. Um, oh, yeah, it was Dale. Was it Dale's yeah, story? Dale. Shout out to Dale Denwall for being an excellent Capitol reporter for us um, here in Oklahoma. So... Um, uh, you know, it's mostly Republicans on there. I think it was almost entirely Republicans, which is not a huge surprise, especially because most of our government is uh, identifies as being Republican. And many of them have said, uh, you know, that was a long time ago, and times are different now, and that pledge doesn't reflect what's actually going on in a given jurisdiction. You know, we, we have this debate about whether or not the Grover Norquist tax pledge matters, and I would tend to argue that it does matter. And the reason I say that is because it creates the conditions for the situation in which we now find ourselves, right? Like, yeah, if you read Dale's article, there are several um, senators and rep- a few representatives that have said, like, you know, when push comes to shove, I would forego my pledge and potentially vote for a tax increase. That is after we are in this, you know, in a special session with a $200 million budget hole, after we've had a billion dollars in lost revenue every year from income tax cuts, close to a billion dollars in lost revenue every year from gross production tax cuts. Like now that we're in these dire financial circumstances where we have hundreds of thousands of people about to lose out on vital services, now they'll forego their pledge that they made to this guy who runs a think tank in Washington. But they didn't forego it before that, right? And and additionally, the the Grover Norquist pledge, it creates this like block of voters in a legislature who think that to raise taxes is always bad. There's never a time in which you should do it. It's never appropriate. It's always this negative thing. And I think that becomes a pervasive influence among a caucus or a legislative body. And I'm not here taking I'm I'm, I'm not here sitting here trying to make the point that Raising taxes is the solution to every problem that a government faces. But I think that any time you ask a legislator to take an option off the table before they ever take office, they say, this is one thing I'm never going to do, you're limiting their ability to effectively govern us. We need legislators to be flexible. We need them to have open minds. We need them to be able to talk to each other. We need them to be able to compromise. That's how we move forward as a society. And Pledges like Grover's are. (laughs) I can't help it. Pledges like Grover's Ah. are what are, in my view, a a stumbling block to 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 that happening. Yeah. So this reminds me. I was listening to the West Wing Weekly podcast last night, and it was the season three finale. Um, and they're they have uh, Aaron Sorkin on there live a live show and they interviewing him, and he references um, a scene. with uh, President Bartlett, and he references a prayer called the Merton Prayer from uh, a Catholic monk, Thomas Merton. And so I looked it up last night, and actually it resonated. I was going for a run, listening to it, and I stopped on the side of the road and texted um, someone in the House leadership um, and sent this to him and said, like, this makes me think of you. Uh, And so I'm going to read it real quick. It's not very long. Um, So, again, this is from... Monk Thomas Merton, a Catholic monk, a a pretty prolific writer. He says, My Lord God, 
I have no idea where I'm going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end, nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think I'm following your will does not mean that I am actually doing so. But I believe that my, the desire to please you does in fact please you. And it goes on for a few more lines, but that's that was the piece that Sorkin referenced um, about Bartlett. And what I said to this legislator was, there's a good chance that you were sitting in there not knowing if you're doing the right thing. And what I think that we, the people, really want is, well, we want you to do the right thing. But we also, I, don't know, I think I recognize that sometimes that's impossible for reasons outside your control. Uh, and if that's the case, then all we ask is that we, that you do everything you can to try to do the right thing. And we got to see that. And I, you know, I, uh, this has been a surprisingly religious episode, but um, I said, you know, like the difference between the monk and talking to God is that God knows all of his inmost thoughts and he knows if he really did all that he could do. And for us as the public, we only know what is presented to us. And so you can say, oh, I, we had these conversations, but if we don't see it, like you say you don't have the votes, but if we don't see the votes, we don't know. And we, I'm okay if something goes up to our vote and it fails, then at least we know why it failed we yeah. know we know for a fact that they didn't have the votes and in that case i think you know i think people would get it but um i get that it is a incredible uh, difficult challenging job to be a legislator and to be the one to make these decisions and try to twist arms and get folks to do what you may think is the right thing when others disagree right and it's designed to be that way it's it's supposed to be hard right but pledges like the americans for tax reform pledge these these conditional statements make it harder and they make it harder for reasons that I don't think are productive. So the flip side, I I get what you're saying I, and I do agree. Let's say we had everyone sign um, a, a, the Oklahoma Teachers Pledge and they all pledged to raise, raise taxes, which most of them did when they ran this last time or they just put out anything. If they violate Grover Norquist's you know, anti-tax pledge and he's getting, so he's the the consequences are he's going to run someone against them. If they violate the Oklahoma Teachers Pledge that I just made up, that most of them actually kind of unofficially took, what's the consequence? I mean, I think, I mean, I think that we saw some of that this most recent round of elections, like right? Teacher I mean, we had well, we had a, I mean, we had how many uh, teacher like teachers or former teachers run for office right. um, recently? Um, in this most round of elections, a few of them won. In fact, we just won, uh, had a teacher in Norman just won a special election. Yeah, weeks after ago. he it was his second time to run. So, yeah. um, so I guess, I guess I don't think it's, I don't think it's a problem for someone who is running, a candidate who is running for an office to say, when I am in office, this is my goal, right? Like I am going to do my best to get a raise for teachers, or I'm going to do my best to prevent him tax increases because I generally think that tax increases are bad for the economy, but to predicate someone's entire fitness for office based on something like this two line pledge from Americans for tax reform, I just think it's, I think it's counterproductive. Mm -hmm. I think that, I think that we as Americans um, and Oklahomans more specifically, we have to realize that they are facing complicated problems and the solutions are going to be, at times complicated and messy as well. And they need to have as many tools at their disposal as possible. Yeah. And so I think anytime you take one of those away, I think that's a problem. I agree. I agree. All right. Uh, well, we're running out of time for this segment. Um, 
But we want to know what you think. I mean, if you have thoughts on this, if you have thoughts about raising taxes or not raising taxes, and I think it's a complicated issue, and we'd love to hear your input, please hit us up on Twitter. Um, you can hit uh, Let's Fix This OK on Twitter. I'm Andy OKC. Scott is SC Melson. Um, that's, uh, that's like Melson with an M. Yeah. Like S- Mary, yeah. not Nelson. Sist- Sister Charlie... Melson. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what the I don't know what the yeah. M is. I forget. Anyway, um, up next, we're going to have a, an interview with State Representative Forrest Bennett. Again, this is an interview that we recorded back during the spring, uh, and was a video on our website. But we're going to share it here uh, because Forrest shared a very heartfelt tweet storm, Absolutely. series of tweets um, about the loss of his grandmother this week. If you haven't and read that thread, you need to go on Twitter and read that thread. Like, that's she just sounds the thing like, that you need to do today. She sounds amazing. It's only 17 tweets, but um, I like that, the, I mean, the gist of it was that she was Republican, she took the stairs, even in her old age, um, and she didn't take no crap from nobody. And she loved my cousin Vinny, which I thought was pretty exceptional. fantastic. So, uh, so we'll follow up after the break with the interview with Representative Forrest Bennett. This week I sat down with a freshman member of the legislature that many of you may know as Bennett with the good hair, and I'm going to go ahead and let him introduce himself and tell us what district he's from. Hi, I'm Forrest Bennett from Oklahoma House District 92, which covers Midtown, Downtown, and Southside Oklahoma City. What made you interested in running for public office? I am a fifth-generation Oklahoman, and I've always been passionate about my state and the people in it. And um, after working in college and out of college to try to improve the community around me, I found an opportunity to do that uh, as a state representative, and I jumped at the opportunity. So hopefully uh, I I can make some change. What's your favorite thing about your district? There are so many things about my district that I love because it's the best district in the entire state uh, that finding one is is hard. But I would say that it's such a cross-section of of the people of Oklahoma. Um, There are young people, there are old people, there are minorities, there are um, there's a rich cultural atmosphere in all of the areas of the district from Midtown on the north side and, and, and downtown and the history there to Capitol Hill on the south side. And um, so I, I guess just, just uh, being able to represent such a, such a large cross-section of Oklahoma's community is, is really special to me. Why aren't more regular people involved in their state government? I think it's I think it's a combination of of a lot of regular people feeling like there are better things to do and a lot of people in government feeling like they don't need to reach out. I think that there are a lot of I think there's a lot of complacency on both sides to be honest with you and um I fault my side of it for that because when um especially young people don't feel like their voice is being heard or um, that anything that they do will really make a difference because a lot of younger people feel differently than their legislators and they will call and they will write them and nothing will change and so they start to feel beat down by that and decide that um, that it's not worth it anymore that there are other things to do in the community and it's not to say that they're not participating in their state government it's that they're participating in other ways in community projects or at the, at the local level but if we can get the same kind of engagement we see there in state government 
I think that a lot, uh, a lot of change would come. What do you see as being the three most significant challenges facing Oklahoma in the next five years? To get technical, we need to broaden our revenue stream and uh, in order to fund core services of go- or core functions of government. Um, and it sounds crazy to say that in 2017 that our biggest challenge is to fund core functions of government, but that's where we're at right now because of last 10, 12 years we've cut um, a billion billion and a half in, in taxes and, and uh, through through taxes and corporate uh, taxes incentives and things like that. So um, restoring that funding in a way that doesn't burden the working class is going to be a huge challenge because if we want Oklahoma to grow um, in a healthy way, then it, that growth needs to go from the bottom up. And while life is very good for um, some people in Oklahoma, Life is really tough for a lot more. And, um, you know, I take the bus from my house to the Capitol in the mornings and the conversations that I hear people having about their daily struggles, um, the challenges that they face, no wonder there are a lot of people that don't have the time or the energy to interface with their state legislator because they are dealing with so many challenges um, when they wake up in the morning. And so um, making sure that we build on an Oklahoma that works for everybody is going to be the biggest challenge. That means funding our core functions of government. That means in, in, in a dream world, um, not only funding core functions of government, but getting innovative about other things that we do. Um, investing in public transit, investing in, in affordable housing, investing in quality, accessible health care for people, because um, these are the things that will make Oklahoma truly great for everybody. What can regular, everyday Oklahomans do to help address those challenges? Get with Let's Fix This, for one. Um, continue to call and email and uh, engage with us. Uh, today is Social Worker Day, and it is also Homeschool Day. Um, every day at the Capitol is a day for, for a different group of people. And um, I love that because every day I walk into the building, there's something new and exciting. Um, there's a different group of people advocating for something else, something different. And so, um, you know, legislators don't know what we don't know. And um, when people come up here to where we work and tell their story, it makes a difference. At least it should. Um, if, if, if it doesn't, then I think that says a lot about the legislator. But... Um, letting us know, I mean, I, I do the best I can to stay engaged with the community, but to an extent, um, you know, it's, it's hard for me to see what everybody's going through if, if I can't see them in day-to-day life. And so when people come up to me, um, come up here or see me at a community event and engage me, um, I, I live on that. And so I would say that not, not, not only calling and, and emailing and, and visiting your, your elected uh, representatives, but, um, but talking to them when you see them at a community event, um, you know, those things are important. And additionally, continuing to work on the community around you. Um, I think a lot of people, especially in an environment like we have today where um, <laughs> some people feel like that the whole house is on fire, um, a lot of people who want to help feel this sense that they need to solve every problem immediately. And that's a, that's a really good way to get burnt out. Your organization does, does this great thing where you just, you provide a landing 
uh, pad for those people. Sort of a landing pad and a launch pad for, for those people because you say, let's just get together and I'm going to give you the tools to work on the issue that you're most passionate about. And what I've told people, especially recently, who contact me and say, I'm ready to get engaged and, and work, is um, find one or two issues that you're very passionate about and work on them and trust that despite feeling like we're behind in a lot of areas, trust that there are other people just as passionate about those issues that are working very hard on them. And if you see them out, um, encourage them in their work, and they'll encourage you in yours. And together, we really can make a difference. But, um, you know, it comes from it comes from a lot of regular folks deciding that they can change the world in their own little way. And if you help five or ten people a week, I help five or ten people a week, and five or... 10 of our friends do the same thing, all of a sudden we're changing the community. And um, when a community changes, so can a state. And if a state can change, so can a country. And so really bottom up, believing in the process. And I would also say that as a student of politics, I know that the legislature, for example, is designed to be slow. It's designed to be slow and deliberative. Um, and sometimes when some crazier ideas come through here, that's a good thing. But um, it can move faster when the people push on us. And when you push and we move, um, that's successful democracy to me. So you keep doing what you're doing, I'll keep doing what I'm doing, and let's encourage other people to get out and, and, uh, and engage too. That brings us to the end of this episode. Big thanks again to Representative Forrest Bennett for joining us. You can follow him on Twitter. He is at Forrest Bennett. You can also follow us at Let's Fix This Okay on Twitter and Instagram. And you can like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash let's fix this okay. Our website, as you may have guessed, is letsfixthisok.org. And on there, you can sign up for our newsletter, read our blog, find details about upcoming events and resources, and now purchase tickets to our fundraising event, Burbun. Our podcast is edited and produced by Scott and me, and Let's Pod This is a member of the Mostly Harmless Media Network. Our theme music is provided by the Sugar Free All-Stars. A reminder that Let's Fix This is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization who strives to educate and equip all Oklahomans to engage with their government. We encourage you to get involved in any way that you can, and to remember that decisions are made by those who show up. Mm-hmm.